Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Welcome to class number two, exploring uh, what we might call uh, the psychology that underpins yoga and meditative contemplative practice. And I just want to start with a follow-up from yesterday because a few people asked about this uh, term that I was using, the default motor network. Um, and so I dug up a study and I wanted to read uh, from the study. Um, you can look this up. This is a famous study done at Harvard University in 2010 by uh, Killingsworth and Gilbert. The title of the study is A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And it's uh, 10 pages long, and I just wanted to read some excerpts from the abstract. Unlike other animals, human beings spend a lot of time thinking about what is not going on around them. Contemplating events that happened in the past, might happen in the future, or will never happen at all. Can you relate to this? <laughs> Indeed, stimulus-independent thought, or mind-wandering, appears to be the brain's default mode of operation. Although this ability is a remarkable evolutionary achievement that allows people to learn, reason, and plan, it may have an emotional cost. Many philosophical and religious traditions teach that happiness is to be found by living in the moment, and practitioners are trained to resist mind-wandering and to be here now. These traditions suggest that a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Are they right? Laboratory experiments have revealed a great deal about the cognitive and neural basis of mind-wandering, but little about its emotional consequences in everyday life. Unfortunately, collecting real-time reports for large numbers of people as they go about their daily lives is so cumbersome and expensive that experience sampling has rarely been used to investigate the relationship between mind-wandering and happiness, and has always been limited to very small samples. We solved this problem. 
by developing a web application for the iPhone. I wish you just stopped there. <laughs> we developed an app, everyone's happy, <laughs> which we used to create an unusually large database of real-time reports of thoughts, feelings, and actions of a broad range of people as they went about their daily activities. This is a fascinating idea. The application contacts participants through their phones at random moments during waking hours, presents them with questions, and records their answers to a database. Listen to this part. The database now has a quarter of a million samples from 5,000 people in 83 different countries who range in age from 18 to 88 and who collectively represent every one of 86 major occupational categories. That's a very, very wide sampling. First, people's, so here's what they realized. First, people's minds wandered frequently regardless of what they're doing. So do, do you get the idea? So uh, throughout the day, you would get this uh, message on your phone, and whatever you were doing, you would mention what you're doing, and then you'd respond. First, people's minds wandered frequently regardless of what they were doing. Mind-wandering occurred in 46.9% of the samples and in at least 30% of the samples taken during every activity except making love. I guess no one just got the message. <laughs> um, um, let me paraphrase that. People spend 40% of their time thinking about what's not going on right now. 40% of their time. Half their time. Second, multi-level regression revealed that people were less happy when their minds wandered than when their minds were not wandering. And this was true during all activities, including the least enjoyable. In conclusion, a human mind is a wandering mind, and a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. The ability to think about what's not happening is a cognitive achievement that comes at an emotional cost. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. So when we're not giving our attention to what's happening in present experience, the default mode is to wander. And wandering always draws us into storytelling, which is always in the future or in the past. And the other problem with stories in the future and in the past is guess who is the main character? Me. I remember being on retreat and one night waking in the night to pee and walking out to the uh, um, uh, outhouse and then still sort of being in a dream and having the realization that even when I'm dreaming, I'm always the main character. Even when I'm dreaming, I'm always the main character of the dream. I guess for some personalities this might be exciting. Uh, for me, this was kind of depressing that whenever I'm thinking about something, something about the process of thinking about anything is building a theoretical self and giving me a feeling that this theoretical self is ontologically real. And 
This process, which supposedly, according to the study, goes on 40% of the time, 47% of the time, but I would argue on some days this is going on 80% of the time for some people. That's just the median average. Leads to unhappiness. And we're living in the most individualistic culture in human history. So mind-wandering is more than mind-wandering. It's selfing. It's creating a sense and bolstering a sense of a separate self. And how can we be happy when we're all by ourselves? Yes? Yeah, Michael, um, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, but as somebody who writes, I wonder... I wonder about this, and this is something that I struggle with, um, because I have this practice that is it is solo, or it's with people, but it's seated meditation, mm-hmm. and it's yoga, but then I also have a, an imagination, and I also want to write, Right. and the mind, the mind does go other places. Yeah, so, so the question really is, I have an imagination, I want to write, so my mind needs to go other places. Yes. So... Um, As many of you know, in our community in Toronto, uh, maybe half the people are artists of some kind, filmmakers or authors or uh, what have you. And so there's always a point in people's practice who do creative work where they say, if my mind starts to get clear, isn't this going to be really bad for my artistic work? Because I'm just not going to have any ideas. But actually, I think it's an unfounded thought because... That thought is based in advance of believing that all of your good ideas come from thinking. But actually, the reason why I called chittavritti, remember the diagram of chittavritti yesterday, the reason why I called that superficial imagination is because mind-wandering tends to happen in loops or tapes, right? There's this tape and that tape and that tape. Good creative work doesn't come from those tapes. Those tapes are repetitive and they're not creative. So the reason why I call it superficial imagination, because it begs the question, well, then what's a deeper imagination? And I would say that when we're able to see thinking and not hold on to it, as space clears in our mind, a deeper imagination arises. And... I like to call that one's Buddha nature. That your nature is uh, imaginative. But we need to free up room for that deeper imagination, which can't come to the surface when it's being covered over by mind-wandering. So mind-wandering is not imaginative. It's repetitive and vulgar. We'll continue that that discussion. Michael, I, I yes. read something where they used the word rumination. Rumination is another good word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. kind of captures that idea. Yeah, it's yeah. not very productive or fruitful. Yeah, ruminating. Sometimes I think of it as a vortex, or I think of it as um, the word that's used in Sanskrit to describe this is samsara, which usually people translate as conditioned existence. Kind of doesn't mean anything. Samsara literally means to go around in a circle. Okay? So uh, 
when I translate samsara, usually, and academics don't like this, but usually I translate it as meaninglessness. Because I think it captures more the flavor of what it's like to have an attention that goes around in the same circles, is it creates a sense of meaninglessness. Which I think captures more than this notion of conditioned existence, which is everything. Um, what it feels like to be caught in what you could argue is an addiction to narrative, right? Because that's what we're talking about, is addiction. So today, I want to bridge yesterday's discussion about the three characteristics, intimacy and mindfulness, with an in-depth study of addiction, which we're going to do tomorrow. And so there's some sort of theoretical material we have to cover today in order to get to where I want to go tomorrow. Uh, so if we're all on board, we'll, we'll jump in. Um, shall we use blue today? What did we use yesterday? Blue. Red? Red and blue. Green. Green? Is blue okay? <laughs> when I was a kid, my favorite color was blue. But it always had the worst smell in the scratch and sniff everything. Um, my older son, his favorite color is black. And when he was a kid, I thought maybe he might go to the Waldorf school uh, daycare and um, so I went to visit the Waldorf school with him and it was time for them to draw and they said to him we only draw in pink and yellow and like they had the colors and he said well I only draw in black <laughs> and he was really upset that they wouldn't let him because they said black is not a color and this upset him so much so we got in the car and he was I think maybe turning four and he turned to me and he said i can't go to school here and i said why and he said johnny cash would only use black <laughs> yeah when he was four he was obsessed with johnny cash and so he really liked the color black johnny cash and black really are inseparable um more on that later <laughs> did he end up going to that daycare he didn't go to that daycare because of this? Uh, also because it was like $10,000 a year or something. <laughs> and I thought, that, that's too much for daycare. <laughs> I'd rather spend it on me. <laughs> um, okay. So, um, in Western psychology, we basically have this idea that we have an external world, which we'll call data, and the data goes inside a black box, and depending on which decade you're living in, this black box might have a different name. Maybe it's the mind, or the brain, or um, the prefrontal cortex, or the limbic system, or everybody has a different name for this black box. And when the data comes out of this black box, it's called experience. So there are events 
They come in through the five sense organs, and then the five sense organs put them through a machine, and it all comes out as experience. And this is a helpful model, <coughs> because we see here that the body processes through the sense organs what then gets processed through the brain, or whatever vocabulary you're using, and it comes out as human experience. This is also a helpful model for understanding things like trauma. So trauma, by definition, is an event that's happened that hasn't been experienced yet. So the event has occurred to the sense organs, but it hasn't actually been processed yet in the black box. So this could be an interesting working definition of trauma, is an event that hasn't actually it's an event that's looking for an experience. Um, we call this process um, information, which I actually, I actually like that word very much. It's sort of, I'll write it here because it's an interesting word, because it literally means information. So this black box is taking data and putting it in formation for experience to happen. And that means that this black box and these five sense organs may have an interdependent relationship, but they're actually considered separate things. In the psychological model that we're going to explore, there's a different idea of how human experience is organized. The basic idea is that our sense organs are uh, thought of slightly different. Uh, it's said that we have six sense organs, the eye, for those of you who chant the Heart Sutra, this is the second paragraph, the ear, the nose, the tongue, Eye, ear, nose, tongue, skin, or body, and mind. So mind is considered a sense organ. So let me give you an example. Let's use the ear as an example because we've been spending time with it the past couple of days. The ear, when we're quiet, the ear is a neutral microphone. And it's just noticing sound that comes and goes. And if you're really quiet, you might notice that you don't create all the sounds that appear in space and time. Like the sound of the opera upstairs, the sound of sirens going by. Um, but you can contribute to the sound field. So if I clap, I'm contributing to the sound field. But if I don't contribute to the sound field, there's just sounds coming and going. I never say, oh, I'm making that sound happen. It's just happening. And likewise with uh, any other one, the nose. Sense come and sense go. And we can contribute to the field of scent Right? The field of the nose, or if we're quiet, scents just come and go 
on their own uninvited. If that's how we think about the sense organ, then maybe the mind is exactly the same way. So the mind notices thought and thoughts come and go. And anybody who's done a little bit of meditation practice knows that you can think thoughts, but also if you're quiet, thoughts arise without a thinker. Thoughts just come and go in the space of awareness, and you don't actually think all those thoughts. It's an amazing, anybody who's a parent knows this. Your kid does something stupid and like something comes out of your mouth and you're like, whoa, is that my mother? Think, oh, did I really just say that? So actually, so much of what we think, we even think to ourselves, we've internalized, um, or it's happening in present experience, but we are not actually thinking that thought. So there are thoughts, but there are thoughts without a thinker. Does this make sense a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So in this model here, there are six sense organs so that then there are six sense objects. The eye notices form, like color, for example. The ear, sound. The nose, scent. The tongue, taste. The skin, touch. And the mind, thought. And wherever there is life, there is mind. For example, now it's the autumn, and when you look around at trees, they're all dropping their leaves. So beautiful. First they go on fire, then they drop. And the tree dropping the leaf is mind presenting itself in the natural world. I'm very interested in gardening, and one of my favorite things to garden are root vegetables. And I really love beets. And there are many kinds of heirloom beets where once they come, uh, once they're ready and they come out of the ground and you slice them, they have rings in them, which are the moon cycles and how many moons they've grown for. It's very, very beautiful. So when you look at those rings, that's mind presenting itself in the natural world. So wherever you see life, there's always mind. And it seems like the way mind presents itself in human experience is thought. What do you, what do you mean mind? Like, it's your mind because you're there and you're noticing this? Oh, well, yesterday we covered that you don't have mind. So it's just the mind. Just mind. And it presents itself in what we think of as our experience in the form of thought. Does that make sense? And the definition of mind in Indian philosophy is called Nama Rupa. Do I have to write this down? Um, 
Nama Rupa. Nama means name and Rupa means form. So the definition of mind is name and form. So the limit of mind is name and form, and the birth of mind is name and form. In other words, the only area that mind can relate to and mind can work within is whatever has a name and has a form. And the job of the mind is just to create name and form, which we would call information. Okay? An example of this is um, if you pray before you go to bed. When I was a kid, I used to do this. Uh, I used to pray before I went to bed, and then you close your eyes and you think, <coughs> I want to pray for my sister. I want to pray for my brother, if he was nice today. Pray for my mom, my dad, my uncle, my aunt, my cousins, my cousins in France, my cousins who I've never met. I want to pray for everybody in Canada, North America, everybody alive, everyone not alive, everyone alive on every continent, and then everybody who's not on a continent right now, like maybe they're flying, or they're in a boat, or they're jumping up in the air, um, and they're not actually on a continent. And then you just hit a place where it's like your mind can't think of another category. And it just... And it's this beautiful experience because you've hit the limit of... You've hit the end of the envelope because your mind can't think outside of name and form. One of my teachers, Patabi Joyce, used to always say, meditate on the unmanifest reality, which was a joke, which is like, try to meditate on the unmanifest reality, and your mind immediately tries to figure out what's the unmanifest reality, and then you see uh, name and form. So the mind is always relating to name and form, and that's the job of the mind. So in the Western philosophical tradition, there's this idea that consciousness is this mysterious thing. And that because of consciousness, the I can see form. Because of consciousness, I can have a thought. Right? We've all learned this or internalized it, even if we haven't learned it consciously. So in this model, it gets a little bit more complicated because what did I say yesterday about anything that arises? Not only is it impermanent, it's dependent on conditions. So that means that the eye and the seeing and the form are all interdependent. Okay? So one way of thinking about this, and I'll move over so that I can use a fresh sheet, is the eye makes contact with a form, and when the eye and the form make contact, you get eye 
consciousness. The ear and a sound make contact, and as soon as the ear and the sound make contact, there is ear consciousness, or we would use the term hearing or listening. Okay, so listening is dependent on an ear and on sound. If there's no sound, there's no ear. If there's no ear, there's no sound. If there's no ear and sound making contact, there's no ear consciousness. There's no listening. In other words, there are six different kinds of consciousness. And that consciousness itself is dependently originating and is dependent on material construct, materiality for its existence. So there is no free-floating eternal consciousness. Consciousness is interdependent like everything else. So for example, siren goes by because ear and siren make contact, there's a moment of listening. And those moments are interdependent and impermanent and if you, in meditation practice, can slow this down, you can, and, and this happens uh, when you have uh, uh, time to really get quiet, that you can actually see sense organ and sense object make contact, producing listening. And actually, if you try and find the ear, there is no ear. The ear only exists when there's sound. You can close your eyes and visualize an ear or draw it out, but an ear is not actually an activity unless there's sound. So the idea, does a tree in the forest falling make a sound, is a moot point. There's only sound if there's an ear. There's only listening. Okay? So there's six consciousnesses, like fireworks, going on all the time. And it's said that they fire 64 times a second, but we're not going to get into that. Yeah. Do these consciousnesses come into play before meaning or interpretation or form? We're going to get to that. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Are there any questions about this? Okay. So we use fancy terms like dependent origination. But another way of thinking about this is contingency. That everything that exists is contingent on everything else, but not at a grand philosophical level, also at a deeply subjective level. In other words, you can never get out of your subjectivity because you can only experience the world through your sense organs. So this is an interesting and important philosophical point, which is that all you have is your subjectivity. And the way this was taught traditionally in Indian philosophy was really interesting. They would say, if you wanted to eat yourself, 
how would you eat yourself? So let's say uh, I wanted to eat myself. I was so hungry and, you know, like I'm, I only eat like 100-mile diet, so I'm not going to go to a store and I'm a renunciate. No alms today. So let's say I start with my, I'll start with my foot. I'll start with my foot. And if I don't have good flexibility, it'd be really hard. But I eat my foot, eat all the way up to my knee, chew on my femur bone, eat my groins, eat my anus, eat my vertebrae, one at a time, crunch, crunch, crunch. Try to save my arms as long as possible because I need them to kind of pull apart my organs. Then I eat my organs so slippery. Can you picture the liver? And then chew on the liver. And then I have to somehow eat my teeth. So I have to like break them and then start eating them. But then how do you eat your tongue? And then when it's time to swallow, how do you swallow your swallow reflex? Or how do you eat your swallow reflex? if that's what you use to swallow. In other words, you can't eat yourself. I've saved you the trouble if some of you are fundamentalists and you're like, I'm gonna really try to prove Indian philosophy wrong. Um, but this, this simile was used to talk about how all you have is your subjectivity. You can't get out of yourself. And that's a radically different place to start doing philosophy. It's also a great teaching for those of you who, in relationship, sometimes say things like, well, I can see this objectively, <laughs> and you're wrong, <laughs> is to always recognize that we're coming out of our subjective experience. And this is 3,000 years before postmodernism. So in every moment of experience, the sense organ and the world are coming together, but in a way, it's hard to say that those two things are separate. When you hear a sound, where does the hearing take place? Is the sound out there? Is the sound in here? And where is the me that's hearing the sound? Or is the me a superimposition that after the sound happens, does mind come in with a thought that that's happened to me? Is there a me that's hearing that sound? Another way to think about this is, let's try this together, is take your index finger, point somewhere near you. Okay. Point at a few different locations and then point at you and like really move your, like when you point down to your ankle, does it feel like you're pointing at you? Or if you point like one inch away from your nose, does that feel like you? But is there a place where it really feels like you're pointing directly at you? There is a spot, isn't there? But like if I did that too, like if I went, Robert, 
you wouldn't feel like I'm pointing at you. But there is a spot somewhere where you really, oh, that's me. Isn't that fascinating? But isn't it fascinating that you can take this body and, like, I, I get this a lot in yoga class sometimes when you hear someone say things like, put your legs in front of you. As if, like, that's not you, but you is somewhere over here. Or if I point at myself, it's like, well, this is not me. The me is, it's inside here somewhere. So dependent origination is trying to point out two things. One is that consciousness is a dependently contingent existing phenomenon. And number two, that if you look closely at that, there's no thing in that process that continues in space and time, even though it feels like it. And the reason why it feels like it is because mind and thought are making contact, creating a sense of self, but the sense of self itself is dependently originating. So it's taking the idea of interdependence and including one's subjective perception in it. And this really, to me, is a, a fascinating way of looking at our moment-to-moment -moment experience. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.